this friend of mine, they call him a modern-day Lazarus because of how God has worked in your life. And, uh, and, and yet that's been with medical means, too. So we really believe God, you know, it's not, we have doctors here. We believe God works through medicine. He can work however he wants. But sometimes in the church, one of the things we do is we put so much faith in medicine, we don't realize there's a God who can do whatever he wants to do, and we just need to put ourselves at his disposal and trust him for whatever his direction will will be in our life. So we're going to talk a little bit about this, and we really want to create here in our church a culture that we've been talking about where, um, where everyone's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. So I'm going to have you say these words, and I'm going to ask you to say them with a little bit of vigor and, and wake up and make sure you're saying them well. So let's just say it together. Everyone's welcome. Nobody's perfect. Anything's possible. If we can create that kind of a culture where we believe in this Jesus who tells us that, you know what, you look at him and his life and people just flock to him, especially people who knew they needed him. People who were in a position, they said, you know, I want you, God. The the ones who didn't stood on the outside and they were very critical because in some ways they felt they had their act together. They didn't really need much of anything, but people who were welcome. Everyone's welcome because nobody's perfect. And these people, in many cases, couldn't wear masks. They were wearing their vulnerability and their weakness right on their sleeve. And so we've talked about this. Nobody's perfect. We admit the fact that if we all would just kind of say it, we, you know, none of us have our act together, right? But we also, on the other hand, really believe that sin is something we need to deal with because it is sin in our life that creates the separation, that creates the difficulties, that creates the problems in our relationship with God and also our relationship with others where we work everywhere. And so we know nobody's perfect, so we don't wear masks. We get there, but we also get really deep and say, God, what, begin to work in our life. And then he says, anything. Anything's possible. And how do you know that? Because Paul, at one point, if you've been in wedding services, you've heard this chapter, chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 13, which talks about love is, love is, love is. And then it says everything's going to fade away, but three things remain. He says in chapter 13, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians, faith, hope, and love. Jesus came full of faith, full of hope, and full of love. And created this everyone's welcome, nobody's perfect kind of place where people could come into the presence of God and meet them right where they're at. So, that's what we're kind of talking about. And in this last week we talked about faith, and this week we're going to talk about hope. And so I couldn't help it as I was preparing these messages. Even back in late August, I was kind of hoping I could be at this place at this point. Because um, I'm a man of incredible hope in one area. And you know what I've said in the past, some of you, that I am a diehard Cub fan. And even though they lost the first game of the series, I still have great hope for them. Yeah, so you can clap for the Cubs and boo Mets. Anyway, um, but you have to ask this question, what would keep the hope alive for a relatively normal, I'm giving myself a little credit here, a relatively or fairly intelligent person who keeps hoping for the Cubs to win the big one? This hope is not merely um, survived in my life for a few years, um, but for many have been hoping that these lovable losers, is what they're called, is for many it's continued for over a hundred years this hope has been kept alive. In fact, as I reflected on this earlier this week, I wrote in my journal these thoughts the day after the Cubs had clinched the playoff, defeating the St. Louis Cardinals, who had the best record in baseball, mind you. They beat him in Wrigley Field, 
which ended a 138-year franchise history drought. That's right. 138 years since Wrigley Field was built, the Cubs had never clinched a playoff there. So I wrote, I face a dilemma in prayer this morning. Do I pray for the Cubs to win it all? Now, you're probably thinking, come on, Pastor, we're paying for you to pray for us. But I also believe that Jesus said, bring everything to him in prayer. So I'm praying about the Cubs. And I'm praying this, song, this, this thought, do I, do I pray the Cubs win at all? Because if they do, although I would for a momentary time be exhilarated and excited and, and, and we'd finally won the big one, I fear that a lifetime of identity that I have had with these lovable losers and a mud, number of diehard Cubs fans, they would soon after move into a place of despair. And you're going, well, why? I mean, they won. I and many others will be adrift and unmoored from the anchor of our Cubs' essential being, losers. Because <laughs> that's all they've ever been. In fact, I think diehard Cubs fans find an identity in this that, that, that we've kind of reveled in and cherished in for as long as we've lived. There's a, there's a weird pride in that. Are we truly ready for such a shift of identity, I wrote? Are we, do we really want this curse lifted? Are we ready to live as winners? And then I wrote, just be careful what you pray for. So what keeps the fans' hope alive? What allows someone to live confidently expecting they're going to win the World Series, one they haven't won since 1908, or even show up in a World Series, which they haven't done since 1945? And it's basically three words. You're probably wondering what keeps the... You know what those three words are? Maybe next year. There's always hope. Maybe next year. And that's not something that, you know, that's something I learned from my father, who learned from his father, and it's just a tradition. It's a long-held way of life. It's our hope. And so as I was thinking about this message, you're probably going, where are you going with this whole thing? Um, we're done. No, um, as a follower of Jesus throughout the years, what do you think the hope of the believers has been for some 2,000 years? If you had to put it in just a few words. What keeps the hope of a believer alive in China under incredible persecution? What about, you know, we just read it just recently, in fact, just the last day or so, ISIS is planning to execute another 168 Christians. What keeps their hope alive? What about in the first 300 years of the church as they were, you know, beginning to see this whole movement grow and, and people would actually be placed on a stake? What kept burning in their hearts this, this hope? while at their feet, licking at their feet, was fire burning around them. What is it that those first believers of Jesus, who, when they were in Jerusalem, were going under some incredible persecution, when the circumstances did not seem good, they were not looking like we are back at this incredible, you know, spread of, of the church. It's, it's just this little group. Well, there's, there's some words that they, they hung their life on. And it's found in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 and verse 33. We've been looking kind of at some of the stuff in Acts and, and looking at some of the themes in Acts. And, and Luke makes a summary here in chapter 4, verse 32 on. He gives us a little, little summary of the, of the life of the church. And he makes this statement of what was really what we talked about last week. When we talked about unity makes possible the impossible. And then we talked about faith actually makes the impossible possible. And you see that in this first verse, it says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. 
no one claimed that any of their possessions were their own. They just said, God, everything you have given me is yours. And, and, and I'm going to be prompted. As your spirit prompts, I will give as there's need. So they shared everything they had. Now look at verse 33. Because here is now moving from faith to hope. With great power. With great boldness. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Now, if you go through Acts, you'll find what's really interesting. They'll explain to them about the death of Christ. But you'll see again and again, they were testifying to the resurrection of the Lord. Because that was the essential, most important message. That's what their hope was based in. And so as I began to kind of think about this message, I, I thought about the reality of, of these believers. And Paul himself saw this as so essential that he wrote to a church in Corinth. He needed to fan, once again, the flame of hope in their hearts. So he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, But if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If Jesus has been resurrected, then the promise is that God's going to win it all. You will be resurrected someday. There's a great hope here in the resurrection. And then he goes on, if there is no resurrection of the dead, there then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. What you're trusting in shouldn't give you any hope at all. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. We have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. So he wants to make this very clear. And then he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. There is no hope. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because we are living a lie. We are promoting a false hope to people. We are really living in some wishful thinking. But I want to share with you the message that gave hope was based on some truths. And those truths informed their hope. So what I want to talk to you about is that hope knows something. It's not just a wishful thinking. Hope knows something. And, and then as you know that something, there's the possibility for hope to grow in you. And then it begins to show in you. That's just the way it works. It's a real simple thought. What does hope know? What is it that hope knows that maybe you need to know? Or maybe you need to be reminded of this, this morning? Simply this truth, the resurrection of Jesus. So, so what do you mean about the resurrection of Jesus? What are, we, what are we testifying here? The simple reality is that Jesus rose from the dead implies all kinds of truths, and here's one of them. Hope knows that God's power is greater than any fear or any circumstance or any power we'll ever face. Okay, Hope knows that. It just knows that God's power is greater. It looks at Jesus and says, wow. 
If the greatest thing in this world that we are most fearful of, that, that brings an end to all our dreams, all our plans, everything that we want, it cuts us off from people. If this is overcome by the power of God, then we of all people can have some hope because we realize this God has greater power than anything we might be facing. Right? Jesus rose from the dead, the grip of death that was so powerful, the sting of death that came in that would create this pain and this all this despair has been removed. Now, this time of year, you see bees flying around, right? And they're usually kind of like, it's, they're like slow. And I love that because you can actually swat them. But imagine a bee when you see a bee and they're moving around a pretty good clip and they're a bee that you really should be afraid of because they've got a stinger in them. We are afraid of that. But here's what God tells us. In death, in the things that are before you, the, the circumstances you're facing, the things that are, that are causing you anxiety right now that may even overwhelm you, he's taken the sting out of it. It can't touch you. It cannot hurt the essential you because of who Jesus is because he rose from the dead and the power of God is available. The power of God is inside you. So you can just kind of look at it and go, you know what, don't need to be afraid of that. But here's the truth. We live with this, this sense where for years, you know, our hope, we may know these things. Here's what I want you to know. Hope knows. There's information. There's truthful information, facts, information that you need to get in your head. And when you, in, when that you are informed with that, after time, as you begin to really live it and believe it, it begins to form in you. So it informs you in order to form in you. It moves from your head 12 inches eventually down into your heart. That's the hope grows part. But you need to know this. God's power is far greater. In fact, at one point, Isaiah, he says in Isaiah chapter 40, he's 39 chapters of, of how their disobedience, their sin, and all these things have created a mess in, in their situation. He says, guess what, though? God is still greater. He can still comfort you. He can still move. And at one point, he actually says, God's hand is like this. He, who has measured? He, he gives this big picture of this big God because they need to see this big God in their situation. And, and I have to tell you, one of the things that's really important in your situation right now is to put your hope on what you know is true and to focus on it and here's the truth you need to see God bigger than anything else in your life you need to know his power is bigger than anything else in your life and so he says here's the God you serve who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand means he takes all the seas and the lakes and the oceans and everything and we think we got a lot of lakes you know 10,000 plus lakes in Minnesota that's nothing and he says and with the breath of his hand from here to here he marks off the heavens You've got to see how big and powerful your God is. The maker of heaven and earth. Do you know that scientists with all these kind of Hubble things and all these whatever galactic cameras that are going out, they have reported that the observable universe that we see, within it, there are galaxies. And in one galaxy, can you guess how many stars there are? One trillion stars. Like our sun, there's one trillion of them in just one galaxy. Now, they say in the observable universe, in one galaxy, there are one trillion kind of suns, stars. How many galaxies do you think there are? Anybody want to guess? 200 billion or so galaxies. And they fit from here to here in God's hand. This incredibly powerful, big God takes Jesus and says, Are you kidding me? 
Satan, you really think the circumstances of death are going to keep my son down? Hope is informed with truth. And that truth in our head begins to form in us hope that grows and shows to the world. Not only that, the hope of God, when I look at this, and I don't have time to go into this passage because I want to give some time to others, but you just read sometime. um, Hope, when you look at not just the power of God, but you look at the will of God, just think of how powerful the will of God. Nothing can stand against the will of God. If God wants to do something for you, if he wants to heal Jim's he can do that like that. That's not a big deal. There's a great story, because I've been reading through Acts and just letting it soak in and, and really get deep into my heart and soul, and I was reading in, in Acts chapter 12, and there's a great story at one point. It says that the night, it, 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 here's, I, I'm going to read it, because you know what? I don't care. We'll, we'll forget some of the other stuff. It, it was about the time that King Herod uh, arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Now, so here's the big will of Herod. Here's the big king in that day. He puts to death James, and then he, he's all excited because when he saw this, had met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. So you have to understand Herod Agrippa. There's a bunch of different Herods, but Herod Agrippa was a Herod who grew up with a, a guy named Caligula. He grew up in, in, in one of the ways they would get a king like that on their side is they'd educate them in Rome. And so he grew up with Caligula. And Caligula eventually, they believe, killed Claudius, the emperor before him. Because Claudius before him wasn't really crazy about little nephew Caligula, Caligula who was really a bad guy. And, and, and so Claudius didn't like even Herod Agrippa, so he puts him in prison. Herod's in prison. He's got these chains on. Caligula kills the emperor Claudius. It's reported that he, Caligula, this is a history, gave these golden chains to Herod Agrippa when he freed him from that jail that he had been put in. He gave him golden chains to remind him of the chains that he had from his the emperor before Claudius. So Caligula has given him a gift. And it says that Herod, who was a king who had, had a, a sense of favor towards the Jews, comes back to his territory. He brings those golden chains. He puts them at the altar of the Old Testament temple. And he gives them there as a gift to the God of the Jews. And they love it. And one of the things he comes into this territory, he finds out when he comes back that there's this imposter who's running around calling himself, who had actually died, and now people are saying he was raised, who was who believed to be like the God, the one and only God of the Old Testament Jews, and he doesn't like it, so he's going to stamp it out. So he takes and he gets rid of James. He sees Peter and he goes, guess what? My popularity index with the Jews is going up. And so he seizes Peter. And this happened during the festival of unleavened bread. And after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by the four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. That shows again his heart to the, to the Jews. He wasn't going to do it during that season. He, he needs to make sure that Peter isn't going to get away. Because here's what he knew about Peter. Peter was a tricky guy. These apostles were trick, real tricksters. They had fooled the people thinking they had had people were healed. They knew these stories were going out there and people were going around telling about, you know, these healings. And not only that, he was aware of the fact, go back to Acts chapter 4, Peter and a few other apostles, they were jailbreakers. <laughs> There's a story, supposedly an angel came and broke him out of jail. So, so Herod's going, I will, capital W, 
with my power, make sure there is no way these guys are getting out of jail. So he goes ahead and he places around them four squads of four soldiers each, which is a huge amount of people in that time to put around Peter. And I love chapter 5. So Peter was kept in prison and the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now just understand this. They were also praying for James and God had a different plan on how his life would be. His will was not thwarted. But they're praying and God tells us to pray for the things. You know what? If you've got something going on in your life, pray about it. Ask God's will to be done on it. And then say, not my will, but your will be done, God. But I want to tell you, if you're praying for healing, pray for it. Go for it. But God decides. But sometimes we need to raise even the level of faith and understanding. I think stories like this go, man, is it really possible? Yes, anything's possible. So they're praying, and here's, I love this line. Look at verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping. Catch this. The night before Herod's going to execute him because they beheaded him. That's how um, John the Baptist, remember, he's beheaded. That's how they would do it. The, the Herods would do it. So that's what probably happened with James. And the story is that he was beheaded. The night before, what's it, can, can you imagine? How would you be feeling? Maybe you're feeling that right now. You're going, it's tomorrow's the big day. I got to be afraid. No, 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 no. You have new information today. God is all-powerful. And you have new information today. God will is greater than any will before you. Because here's the story. I, I love this. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter, now catch this, was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. Sentry stood at the guard of the entrance. Okay, it's secure. No will will stand against Even these tricksters aren't going to get away. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared. And, an angel, and the light shone in the cell. Now, you've got to catch this. Have you ever been asleep where you feel the presence of someone moving? So here's an angel's presence, and Peter is sleeping. And it says the light, he turned the light on. It's kind of like, whoo, it's high as a wrist that would go in his angelic being. And it says, and the light shone, and he, he struck Peter on the side to wake him. Quick, get up, he said. The chains fell off Peter's wrist. I just get this incredible picture. Peter is sound asleep, not a worry. He's, he goes, my God's all-powerful. His will's greater. If he wants to do whatever he wants to do, he'll do it. He's sleeping like a baby. Try sleeping on a hard floor with chains on you with two guys next to you. And the angel has to actually go and go, Peter, get up. And Peter gets up. And it says he goes out with him. And it says he goes through the first set of guards, he goes through the next set of guards, he comes to the city gate, which is locked and closed, and it opens on his own. And as he walks one block, the angel leaves him, and he goes, I guess this isn't a vision, this is real. Now I know. I just love this. As I thought and prayed about it, and that day I was actually wrestling with some stuff. It's so amazing. If you don't have a quiet time, I feel so bad that you don't take time to be with God. I really mean that. I, you don't have to spend hours. I mean, if you take 15, 20 minutes where you just put yourself before God and say, God, here's what's going on in my life today, and let God speak to you. And, you know, and Jim said how guys don't like to journal. I, I meet with uh, small groups of guys, and I, I try and make them journal. I can't be over them to make sure they actually do it. But I encourage them to do it because I understand that when you actually read the Word of God, it only is like information. 
But when you have to wrestle with it and really pray and ask about it, it then becomes not just information. It it actually is information that forms in us something. And what does it form in us? Hope. And what was happening that day in my life? I needed to know in my life that there is no greater will than the will of God. I needed to be reminded of that. And I read that passage of scripture and God said, Kevin, Kevin, wake up. Not only am I all powerful, but my will is greater than any will that stands against you. And you need to know this too. God's will is always good, acceptable, and what? Perfect. Why do we know that? Because the resurrection knows this as well. That God loves you. You know why you know that? Because when Jesus took as the high priest the sacrifice and he went up on the cross and he bore the sacrifice himself of your sin. When that sin was taken on him, it was to- we we're told that, that sacrifice was a sacrifice for forgiveness. And why we know this is because Jesus resurrected, and in a moment I'll show you, the resurrection is like the receipt that you're given to guarantee. You just look at the resurrection, you look at the empty tomb, and anytime you kind of go, boy, and you start feeling accusation, you start feeling guilt and things like this that are coming against you. Now, if you do something wrong, guilt is a measure that God puts in you so that you go, oh, I did this wrong, so this, I got to change. I need to repent. But the guilt that harangues you for past sins and all these different things, or the guilt that's going to harangue you for things in the future, it's all been removed because on the cross, Jesus took it, and he was resurrected. The tomb is the empty, is the receipt. If you go in a store, and you buy something and you get the receipt, how many of you walk out of the store afraid and nervous are going to kind of come and get you and say, hey, you didn't pay for that? Anybody? Because if they do, we're all in trouble, right? But we all know that when you get the receipt, it's the receipt that says you paid in full what you just purchased. So you walk out with confidence going, this is mine. And what the resurrection says is every time you look at the empty tomb, it's that, rem- it's that empty, it's that receipt that you just go and say, you go, that, that empty tomb is the, is, the, is the guarantee, it's the assurance that what was sacrificed is good. And here's what's really cool. Not only the resurrection, the ascension tells us what Jim was saying earlier. Jesus himself sat down once for all. It's done, guys. It's complete. God is powerful. God's will is greater than any will against you. God loves you more than you can imagine. Anything is possible. Anything is possible. Now, I know I sound really convincing. <laughs> so let me get really vulnerable. Living this out even in my life, it's hard. It's difficult. The patterns that you've learned, the way that we've been informed, the way we've been wounded, the way we've been hurt, all those kind of things throughout our life come against us. But part of what hope knows by informing us now begins to be formed in us when we begin to grow. And here's one of the ways you grow. So if hope knows, here's the ways hope grows in you. Hope, you're going to hate this, okay? I'm, I'm really sorry, but it's probably one of the most common ways hope grows. Hope grows through waiting. Hope grows in the situation you're in right now where you're kind of waiting and calling out to God and the circumstances look really bad and you are in this place where you have to go back to the information of what you know in your head and you say, God, in my head I know this, but I'm going to exercise faith in this truth and as I exercise the muscle of faith, one of the products of that muscle of faith is that hope, it moves from here down to here. Right? 
I, I have here all kinds of scripture in Psalms that it says, I mean, you can go through all the Psalms. Lord, I wait on you. Lord, wait. I, when are you going to do I'm waiting on you, Lord. In fact, one of the favorite questions of the psalmist, you know what the, the question is? How long? <laughs> How long? You're not alone. But I do want you to know this. You need to live informed of the resurrection. That was the message in Acts. That was the message that gave hope. God is powerful. God's will is greater. God loves you deeply. I didn't say one of the other things hope knows. God knows you're going to win at the end, okay? Jesus is coming back, okay? And then now as you let hope grow in you, part of that process is waiting, and it happens often through trials. And in those kind of trials, here's a wonderful thing that happens. As you let hope that informs you begin to form in you, Jesus the light of God begins to shine through you. Hope shows where you go. Not only hope grows through waiting, hope grows through the word of God. I, I said it earlier, I'll say it again. You need to be in God's word. This is where God speaks to the heart. He uses his word. We are a church of the word and the spirit. He uses his word by the spirit of God in our heart to begin to grow in our heart's hope. It's critical we know this. It's critical we live in this. Hope grows through the word of God. Hope grows through waiting. It hopes through the word of God. Hope grows as well through worship. You know what? You're going to be challenged every time, every week. You're going to go, oh, I'm just too tired. I really don't want to do this. And I don't want to even get up to show up. Hope grows through worship. Part of this is a sacrifice. It says in, in Hebrews, through, through Jesus, we offer the sacrifice of praise. With our lips, it says we offer the sacrifice of praise. So showing up is a big deal. But then when you show up, sometimes you show up and you go, I just don't feel like praising God. I just, you know, someone, you know, ran you off in the parking lot. You just, you're not in a good place, right? Kids are been a pain. I... The Christian life takes effort. It takes active effort. It takes effort to come into this place and to go, you know what, even though I don't like this song or maybe know this song, I'm still going to give myself. God, I'm giving myself. I'm putting my heart into this because it's not about anything else. It's about you. And it's about allowing you to begin to, to, to speak through me or sing through me or to live through me. And when you begin to do that, hope begins to grow through worship. And not only does it grow through worship, here's a really cool thing too. Hope grows through stories. You know what's really cool? One of the reasons you do read the Bible is you can read stories of how God has worked in the past. That's a great thing because those stories generate faith. They help you to believe. You also have personal stories. If you've walked with the Lord at all, hopefully you have some stories in your past where you can go, you know what? You can use them as building blocks. Say, you know what? God came through for me here. He did it here. Have you ever been in a place... He did it here. There was a time in my life I was wearing, just recently, a ring on my finger. And, and I, I put on one, and God said, no, that's not the one. And so I put this one that looked like a big championship ring. Because he said, Kevin, I want you to live in, in the truth of the fact that, that I'm coming through for you. I didn't know what that was going to look like, but I just knew that he said, I'm going to come through for you. And you know how I could live that way? It's because he did it before and before and before. One of the reasons we are having people come up and share their stories like Jim did, we've been doing this for the last, really the last year or so, but even trying to increase that number and, and creating here a culture of faith, hope, and love is because stories help generate that. Your story wasn't meant to be kept to yourself. Now, I, there are some precious stories that are yours that you hold here. I, I understand that, but you know what? God gives you a story to tell because your story can create faith in someone else in a way that I could never do it from the pulpit. 
Part of being bold is, not, is, is beginning to say, God, like Jim said, I want you to be alive. I want you to be fresh. I want you to be working my life today. I, it's, you know, 40-year-old stories can be nice. 20-year-old stories can be nice. But stories of God today, and if he isn't, if he isn't working in your life, I just say, like Jim said, don't wait. Invite the Spirit of God into your heart right now. Because hope actually shows in people when it's formed, when, it, when you're informed with what is true and it begins to form in your heart, this hope, this hope begins to shine like a light. And you, you actually just live it out and you give it out. You're like a doctor who comes up and goes, hey, hey, I got a different prescription. I, have, I bet you had no idea the word of hope he was given. It's like the note that you send to someone that God might be prompting to you. You may not even have any idea that you're just, you're just giving out hope. It's like we talked about last week. Remember we talked about this little 12-year-old boy. He was suicidal. He didn't believe there was a God. He was meeting with someone in our church, and someone in our church said, you, know, you should meet with our middle school pastor. And, 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 and he meets with our middle school pastor. Our middle school pastor just shares with him some things about Jesus. He doesn't believe there's a Jesus. He goes home about a week later, has a dream, and in that dream has an encounter with Jesus, and he gives his life to Jesus. That was in April. So I contacted her and I said, you know, still things going well. And she said, yeah, in fact, even more so. What's really cool is he was in such a tough situation with his siblings this summer. We were able to, because of the gifts that you give, send this boy and his, his siblings to camp. And it was the highlight of their year because you are sowing seeds of hope by your giving. You're not just turning lights on. We say that from time. You are actually turning lights in the hearts of people. And so I, I've, I'm going to conclude this, and I asked Rule Nygaard if he'd come up, because one of the ways that we're going to actually um, give you an opportunity to do this, and so this is not like a high-pressure thing, so please don't take it that way. But if you don't do this, we're really going to be mad. Um, no. No, for three years we've been, you know, for years we've been packing food, but for three years we've been packing food to a school called St. Margaret's in Arusha, Tanzania. So tell us just a little bit about this and the opportunity this Saturday. Okay, thanks, Kevin. You're right on. This uh, coming Saturday, we're going to be packing food for the third time uh, for the school, uh, St. Margaret's Academy in Tanzania. And my wife and I have been involved in an organization called Friends of Africa Education for about 10 years. And uh, during that time, we've built about uh, 20 classrooms over there and also a dining hall. And that's who you'll be packing food for on Saturday. Uh, we'll be packing 60,000 meals on Saturday. Uh, that's about 25 cents a meal for kids to have a, one meal a day for the entire school year. And you should know that some of these kids, that'll be the only meal that they'll get that day. So I want you to know that I'm uh, filled with hope that you'll show up for this and we'll have a table <laughs> outside in the hall where you can sign up. And I'm also a possibility thinker. In fact, I think it's possible to pack 60,000 meals if you'll all sign up to help us out. So thanks. Thanks. You know, one other thing I just would say is, is the uh, ushers come forward to take the offering and as the team comes to lead us in worship to close here, is there's a couple tables out there. One for that. There's also a table for a marriage retreat. And if you, um, you, you know, want to tune up in your marriage or you'd like to get to know some other couples, please sign up for that as well as the ushers take the morning offering and we close.